right. So something new, something different. No more Gospel of Matthew. We finished Matthew's Gospel last week, but I think something that you will find out more about me um, and how I think and, and how I process things long term is I'm very linear. Um, I like things to be have connection. I like things to, not, not just a preference, that's just how I'm wired. So I think you'll find a lot of times there's movement from one thing to the next and there's a connectedness. So this morning what I'm hoping to do, I'm, this morning is a bit of what I'm calling a prologue. We're going to begin a series in the study of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're going to spend a number of weeks, probably not as long as Matthew, but we'll, we will be studying through the role of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does He do? What can we expect? What, how do we navigate the many things that we see and or hear within Western evangelicalism as it pertains to the person of the Holy Spirit? What should we believe rightly in regards to our day in and our day out and our profession of the gospel to darkness and bringing light? Um, so we're going to move into that series, but before we do that, as I was preparing and seeking the Lord for direction in that regards, I feel like that it just was super clear, um, both a reminder of where we were and as to where we are going. When we ended Matthew chapter 28, there was four imperatives that Jesus gave at the end of Matthew 28. They were to go, to make, they were to teach, and it was to remember. To go, to make, to teach, and to remember. Those were four imperatives of that last portion that we commonly know as the Great Commission those four imperatives. But there's an element to this that we saw through Matthew, as well as if you were with us when we did our study through the book of Acts just prior to Matthew in 2018 and 2019. There's an, there's an element to these four imperatives that the Holy Spirit Himself fills. Even though there's this partnership and interplay between us and God, between what we're called to in mission and the sovereignty of God and the Holy Spirit's role in the proclamation and in the declaration of the gospel. There's this, this both and, if you will. And we saw that, and it was very clear as we went through the book of Acts and we studied the Holy Spirit as to the gospel proclamation through the book of Acts. And I think it's oftentimes that we can be obedient and we can check those boxes of the, the go, the make, the teach, and the remember. And it's like, yeah, I did this, and I did this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this. And, and we can do those diligently and obediently, but we might not see the fruit that we hope or expect to see. Why is that? It's because of God's part in the mission of the gospel. It's God's play of His sovereign will that He um, acts upon. It's something that only He can do, and we, of course we know that within salvation, it's uniquely His and His alone. It's the Lord who draws the hearts of men and women, we must be obedient to speak. But just because this mystery of when and how God moves and, and God's plan is enacted, just because it's always in play when we speak the gospel, it doesn't negate the importance of what we can and ought to do, right? And we've talked a lot about this. Just bear with me here. This is me kind of getting a runway and laying the groundwork for what we're going to say this morning. So what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? It's that we must understand, listen, we must understand what is our part and what is God's part. I think we often 
we know what we are called to do, whether we do it or not, right? We know what it means to be an obedient Christian, more or less. But oftentimes it's the mystery of what is God's part? And so what I'm hoping to do in teaching through this role of the Holy Spirit is to teach some of that as well. As much as that's been revealed to us within Scripture, we'll keep it within the confines of what's been revealed. Do not worry. We're not writing extra-biblical texts as we go. So this, this, this teaching series through the role of the Holy Spirit will be focusing on who the Holy Spirit is and what He does for us and for the world in His sovereign plan. And I think that there's many of us, myself included, at many times, who have either missed or misunderstood the role of the Holy Spirit, not just as it pertains to the power of the transformation of the work of the Spirit in the life of a Christian, but the role of the Holy Spirit as He is the means by God's, uh, the, the means by which God accomplishes His plan on earth. See, there's both, there's an inward facing and an outward facing aspect to the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you this quick definition and then we'll dive in more into what I'm going to say this morning. Because you'll hear us, you'll hear me and the others who teach on the Holy Spirit say this as well in the future. There's a good definition that Wayne Gruden, if you are familiar with Wayne Gruden, he gives this definition, and I love it as it pertains to what I want to say today. As it pertains to the role of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, Wayne Gruden says, is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. I'll just say that one more time. The role of the Holy Spirit, just grab onto this. The role of the Holy Spirit is to manifest, is to make known, is to make visible the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who reveals both the person and the power of Jesus Christ to the world and to the church. And if you're in the church, that's to you. That's not just here somehow he's going to manifest this big presence. No. It's right here. It begins in your heart. But before we go in too far into this, what I want to consider today is what is our part of the equation. And we've spoken at great length over the last 18 plus months of the necessity to speak, to testify, to open your lips and to speak of the gospel, to profess the gospel. But I want to say today that as I was considering the connection between that Matthew 28 and between this role of the Holy Spirit, I realized there's something incredibly significant of, in addition to just that mandate to speak. And so I've titled today's teaching Patterned for Mission, and that's going to make more sense here as we get in. Open your Bibles, please, if you brought them to 2 Corinthians. Patterned for Mission. We have been patterned for mission. 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at chapter 4. Just a couple of verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. This is Paul speaking. He's written this letter to the church in Corinth. This is a letter written much like you might write to your daughter, to your son, to your grandparent. Hopefully less confrontational though. Your letter, that is. Paul's is very confrontational. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. For what we proclaim, 
is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that again. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, but we have this treasure. What treasure? The treasure that he just spoke of in verse 6. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Church, brothers and sisters today, we are the vessels. We are these broken vessels. We are these jars of clay. We are the vessels of His surpassing power is the language that Paul uses in this text. We are vessels of His Spirit. Listen, we're fragile in our physical state. In our mortal state, we are fragile. Which one day we know will break beyond repair. But we are a vessel nonetheless. We are a vessel nonetheless. How many of you feel like a broken vessel sometimes? Right? (laughs) Why? So that his surpassing power might be made known. We are these vessels. The good news in that too is that it's God's plan for us to be a vessel. It's God's plan that we feel broken. It's God's plan that we feel needy, that our cracks and our fissures show. And the, see, the beauty and the glory of this is that this is what we carry. It, it's what we carry within us. It's not about the container itself. It's what is within the container that God wants to bring attention and draw attention to. See, we are the vessels of the presence of God. And that's a significant aspect. As Paul would say here, what is the presence that he's speaking of? I don't want you to get confused. Some of you might have this preconceived idea of what presence means, especially if you have been in maybe a broader, more charismatic or a Pentecostal sense. Presence is often just that like wacky-dacky, you know, fall-on-the-ground manifestation or like the soaking presence of God, you know, where we just want to be somehow in this kind of intimate space. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the language that Paul uses is the surpassing power. That we are vessels of the surpassing power of Christ Jesus. We have been created to take His presence into the world through our physical presence. Created weak to show that His surpassing power belongs not to us, but it belongs to Him. And so the surpassing power is His Spirit. In Romans 8, you don't have to turn there, but Romans 8 verse 11 says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, listen to this, what is this vessel of presence I'm speaking of? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So therefore our prayer ought to be as Paul's would then say to the Ephesians church that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness, the surpassing power of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. See, I think too often we confuse God's intention of this. We think that we're supposed to be this polished royal chalice, that we're supposed to be this unblemished, you know, kind of ornate looking thing. And you guys remember Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, right? And he's going and he's looking for the, you know, the goblet from the Last Supper. And he picks up this really beautiful one and it's all shiny and gold. And what does he say? You have chosen poorly, right? And what is the one that he picks up? The, the one that supposedly is, you know, the Holy Grail. It's this, it's dull, it's faded. You know, it's got this patina to it. It's probably got a crack somewhere and there's a little bit of that holy water leaking out the back. That's kind of the picture. But see, this is my point though, is like, we think that we should not look like this. And what I'm saying this morning is this is precisely God's intention for us. And I'm going to get to the moment, uh, get to the point in a moment here, which obviously this is going to leak. So there's going to be a need for a constant filling, for a constant um, attention given to what goes into this, lest it be it remain empty and useless. So this is what we're to look like. You don't have to have it all together, you guys. You don't have to look like this really great polished looking shiny gold thing with your little jewels. Be dazzled. We are broken vessels. We are jars of clay. And when we think this way in regards to what we think we ought to look like, the problem is, is that what happens then when our cracks begin to show and when our blemishes are seen and we leak, it skews our sense of self-worth. It skews, this, it skews our identity and, into believing that, oh, I'm not as I ought to be. But when we understand that we are in fact meant to be seen with all of our warts and fault lines and our unpolished surfaces, God's ultimate aim is then achieved because it's not the vessel, but it's the glory of what is in it that receives the attention and receives the praise. And you might feel like I'm just kind of laboring at the same point here, but there is a need for us to remember this because so often, and we've talked about this as it pertains to moralism that creeps into the church, where it's this sense of like needing to do and needing to look and needing to be a certain way in order to receive the praise or the affection of either each other or of, of course, the Lord himself. But let's remember that we are all of the same nature in this regard. So it's the one who fills this vessel. It's the one who carries it around, who holds this vessel together, keeping the seams from busting apart, repairing it ongoingly, giving it inherent worth, giving it inherent value in its being used. He's the one who gets all the recognition, and it's not about how great we are. And then as such, we take what we've been given, not to hold nor to hoard, but to pour out what we have been filled with. This is what it means to be a vessel of the presence of God. Let me ask you this. What do we do when our vessels are filled but not with the things of the Spirit. 
rather than with the things of this world. What do we do? So you don't must understand the analogy or the, or the question in that is in that you have the Spirit of God within you, as we just read in both Ephesians and in Romans. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you have been filled with the Spirit of God today. So that's not what I'm saying, because that cannot change. That will always remain. But again, the interplay between us and God, the reality is, and the truth of the matter is, is that we fill our vessels as well. We either choose to fill it with the righteous and holy things, or we choose to fill it with the unholy and the worldly things. We place things within this vessel where He wants to fill us to overflowing with His surpassing power, with His presence for His mission. The enemy of our souls also wants to fill us with His things, diluting the presence which we carry. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Stick with me here, please. Like I just had so much faith for this this morning. And so I'm asking the Lord as I'm speaking, man, Lord, just like speak through me to this church, because again, I just want to draw the correlation between what we have been talking about in Matthew, now and where we're going to go, go in terms of the Holy Spirit. We have to understand how we have the Spirit of God within us, the importance of it, and how we can be effective in our mission. I won't say anymore. I'll keep going. See, the deluge that we are subjected to daily Moment to moment to moment is what we call the liturgies of culture. And we've talked about this before. So liturgies, if you're not familiar, liturgies are just patterns. They're patterns that are aimed to shape and form our habits and our desires. They inform us subconsciously and they create in themselves new rhythms of thinking and behaving. Liturgies are just patterns. They shape our identity they form and inform our how, what we do and how we do it. So what happens then when we walk too close to the proverbial fire of culture? What can we expect when we live, when we work, when we play, when we invest ourselves, rightfully so oftentimes, and our families into the rhythms and the system that is the world around us? See, this is super important. There are cultural systems of worship, you guys. Think about this for a moment. You might not have heard any of these or thought of this language before, but just think of what I'm talking about. There are cathedrals of worldly worship that have been erected out within the world who have a pervasive and constant liturgy or a pattern that we are bombarded with subconsciously that is created to shape the way you think, to shape the way you behave, to shape the things that you desire. And what I'm saying today is, let's wake up to those liturgies because they fill us. And when they fill us, what the Holy Spirit wants to fill us with becomes diluted. Systems like this, systems of worldly worship, individualism, these are all ones we've heard before. In terms of the Western system of worship, individualism, right? Individualism, the worship of self-expression and self-reliance. Hedonism, which is the pursuit of what? Self-indulgence, pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure. 
Autonomy. Freedom from self Freedom from external control. That's a worldly system of worship. Consumerism. The pursuit and amassing of earthly treasure. Those are just a few, but I would say those are probably some of the significant systems of worship that we are faced with in culture. I wonder if I have time. I wanted to read something to you today that there's a, I'll just I'll reference it. There's a book. I was going to put it here for you. Sometimes I like to tell you what I'm reading. There's a book called Desiring the Kingdom by a man named James K.A. Smith. And he has this brilliant, and I, won't, I was going to read a, a section of it to you today. We have time. Would you grab me the book out of that? And I'll read a portion of it. And then I'll save the, I was going to explain it to you, but I won't now. It's going to be much more fun this way. This is a book, Desiring the Kingdom, Worship, Worldview, and Cultural Formation. Interesting, huh? Worship, Worldview, and Cultural Formation. He begins in the introduction of his book speaking much about this very thing of of cultural liturgies. He says this. I'll give you the quick context. He paints this picture of somebody coming outside of Earth. Okay, just go with me on the sci-fi adventure for a moment coming from outside of earth, they're coming to earth and they're seeing these, these temples, these cathedrals that are erected at places of worship within the, the earth's worldly system. And he begins to describe what is being seen. All right, This is a, this is a book about God. Don't worry, this is not a, a, book, a book about aliens. So he, he describes all of these things, the, the, the space around these cathedrals, and he's describing one in particular, and he says, the design of the interior is inviting to an almost excessive degree sucking us into the enclosed interior spaces with windows on the ceiling, open to the sky, but none on the walls, open to the surrounding automotive moat. This conveys a sense of vertical and transcendent openness that at the same time shuts off the clamor and distractions of the horizontal, mundane world. This architectural mode of enclosure and enfolding offers a feeling of sanctuary, retreat, and escape. From the narthex entry, one is invited to lose oneself in the space which channels the pilgrim into a labyrinth of octagons and circles inviting a wandering that seems to escape from the driven, goal-oriented ways we inhabit in the outside world. The layout of this temple has architectural echoes that hark back to medieval cathedrals, mammoth religious spaces that can absorb all kinds of different religious activities all at one time. And so one might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation, along of this, oops, so sorry, alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. And as we wander this labyrinth in contemplation, preparing to enter into one of these chapels, we'll be struck by the rich iconography that lines the walls and in the interior spaces, unlike the, the flattened depictions of saints one might find in a stained glass window. Here is an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, with all iconography, inspires us to be imitators of these exemplars. And here again, see, we need to appreciate the the catholicity, catholicity of this iconography. These same icons of the good life are found in such temples across the country and around the world. The symbols and colors and images associated with their religious life are readily recognized the world over. 
The wide circulation of these icons through various mediums, even outside the sanctuary, invites us to make the pilgrimage in the first place. This temple, like countless others now emerging around the world, offers a rich, embodied visual mode of evangelism that attracts us. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires and compels us to come not with a dire moralism, but rather with a winsome invitation to share in the envisioned good life. Have I lost you? Stick with me. Let me just read this last bit, and then we'll all collectively guess what he's been describing within Western culture. I'll skip through it. After time spent focused in searching in what the faithful call the rack, with our newfound holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar, which is the consummation of worship. While alkalites and other worship assistants have helped us navigate our experience, behind the altar is the priest who presides over the consummating transaction. Lost my space. Where am I? I completely lost my space. Well, the words are gone. Oh, here it is. And this is a, relig- this is a religion of transaction, of exchange and communion. When invited to worship here, we are not only invited to give, we are also invited to take. We don't leave this transformative experience with just good feelings or pious generalities, but rather with something concrete and tangible, with newly minted relics, as it were, that are themselves the means to the good life embodied in the icons who invited us into this participatory moment in the first place. And so we make our sacrifice, leave our donation, but in return receive something with solidity that is wrapped in the colors and the symbols of the saints and the seasons. Released by the priest with a benediction, we make our way out of the chapel in a kind of denouncement, not necessarily to leave, our awareness of time has been muted, but rather to continue contemplation and be invited into another chapel. What is this man speaking of? The mall. He has spoken, it's brilliant. He gives his entire introduction dedicated to describing the mall in this place of worship, but but what is absolutely profoundly brilliant about it is that he is spot on. He has taken this worldly system, this worldly worship system of... He's broken it into language that we can relate to and we can understand because this is language of worship, right? But yet he's described it so brilliantly. Listen, that might seem a little extreme, right? But the point is, is there's actually so much truth in what he's described here. The way in which, again, the world, the liturgies of culture are poured into us day in and day out that call us to worship, but not to worship the true and living God, but to worship a dead worldly system. Invariably, unless we've intentionally made concerted efforts to stave off the cultural onslaughts of liturgies, we are within themselves, sorry, unless we have taken the time to stave off this onslaught of cultural liturgies day in and day out, which are in and of themselves, value and habit forming. We become susceptible to being infiltrated by the very thing which we are endeavoring to be apart from. We have just spent nine months talking of what it means to not be of this world. And yet every single solitary day, we are subjected to the strong call, the iconography, to be of the world, 
and it's done subconsciously. Listen, this might, you might feel like, well, man, this is rather heavy-handed. I can't be more just the... I just want to implore you guys, be on guard, be alert. The, the enemy, the word that the, enemy, that the Bible uses to describe the enemy is that he's cunning, right? It's cunning. This world that we live in is cunning, you guys. And if we are to be the vessels for the surpassing power of God, effectively in the mission that he's called us to, we have to be building within ourselves our own robust sense of liturgy that as we have said in the past, combats this worldly system. There's a quote uh, from another gentleman by the name of Mark Sayers in this regard. He says this, When we do not follow God, when our lives are not submitted to His will, we pattern our lives around our loves. Think about that statement for a moment. The patterns of our lives will be reshaped around our disordered desires engineering us at deep and powerful levels, directing us away from God. Again, it's the very thing that we have set out to keep ourselves apart, um, apart from, we find ourselves being drawn back into by having these disoriented patterns, these disoriented desires within our life. And then what happens? We are now no longer ambassadors but we're slaves to this world system, undermining the mission that we're called into. See, as beings, you guys, and you know this, we are created to worship. Whether you are a believer or not a believer, in the core of who you are, you have been created to worship, and you will worship something. The question is, what do you worship? Are you worshiping Him? Or are you worshiping something else? If it's something else, then it is, as Mark says, what ends up happening is little by little by little. As we are patterned away from God, so goes our hearts, so goes our habits, so goes our thinking, so goes our behaving. And then when this happens, we're no longer administering the things of the Spirit, but now we're also sowing things of the flesh, which only perpetuate the liturgies of culture that are around us. We're just feeding into the system that we're drawing from. Does this make sense? I hope this is speaking to you. Again, it has to do everything, has everything to do with how effective we are in our mission. Let me ask you this. Oh, this is going to be hard. And I'm to just picture me sitting right here as I say this. Parents, are you building patterns of worship into your children? Babe, are we building patterns of worship into our children? Are we helping them to be oriented towards Christ? Or are we helping them to be oriented to the world around them? Husbands, what about your wives? Are we patterning, or are we, are we building patterns of right worship, of holy worship into our families and into our spouses? Or, are, again, are we pointing them towards something, some other Savior, thus enslaving them into this worldly system that's around us? Super simple example. Ooh, this is a super tough one. It's this baby right here. How do we interact with modernity? What is our pattern of worship as it pertains to modernity? Social media, these babies right here, 
right? I won't say your name so no one on the recording knows it. See, I'm looking right. I'm just kidding. I'm just giving you a hard time because your phone went off that one time, right? It's never going to, you know, it's always going to be there. I'll always bring it up because I love you. What are we doing with these? What are we doing? See, Shannon and I, one of the things that we've done to try to fight this is we've said, okay, we're not going to give cell phones to our kids. Our kids don't need cell phones. What? what? Is that funny? <laughs> Apparently, maybe you've been patterned towards the world. I don't know. But I'm just, oh, that was, that was, oh, that was a supportive laugh at me? Okay. <laughs> Shannon and I have said we're not going to give cell phones to our kids. Why? Because our kids don't need them. Do our kids want them? Yes, they do. Why? Because everybody around them has them. Because suddenly our children need a cell phone. We won't go into that. Like, when I was your age, we didn't have children. No. The point is, the, the, the point is, is that the children don't need them. And what happens is, is this is a strong pull towards the system of worship that the world is. Super strong. And how about parents? See, here's the thing. And Shannon and I talk about this all the time, so I, I'm, I'm not uncovering my wife or, or myself in this. We talk about this all the time. What's the first thing you go for? Do you reach for your phone? That's a pattern, you guys. See, these are deep subconscious. They talk about that, like, buzz in your pocket, that phantom ring that, or buzz that people feel. Why? Because you've got this deep, ingrained pattern into your thinking that's like, oh, someone's calling me. Oh, someone's text messaging me. Oh, my wrist is beeping and you know. I'm telling you, this I'm being I'm being silly, but we all are like, oh, I know. This is this thing is a strong pattern forming hold on our life. See, are we aware of it though? That's the first step. And once we're aware, are we in control of it? Sometimes I man, it's only been ten years or something like that. I like to take this thing and go back ten years and wish that this was never made. But yeah, here I am, holding one in my hand, using it, you know, to project up here. It's tough, but the point is, is what are we orienting ourselves towards? This is a small example. There's many others. You know what the one is for you. Allow the Lord right now by His Spirit to speak to you. See, it doesn't take, like, all you have to do is take a minute of introspection and go, okay, what is it? Okay, I know what it is. Romans 12, 1 through 2, a well-known text says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in light of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says this in, in verse 2, Do not be conformed, and the NIV says, to the pattern of this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What are we oriented towards? What, is, what are the patterns that are being built into us? But let me just say this today in the time that's left. It's, this, is, this right here is the beginning point, what I've been speaking about. These liturgies, these patterns, these habit-forming things that are within our life, that's where it begins as it pertains to this effectiveness and mission. But see, that's just the beginning, and there's this understanding that this initial orientation allows us to be rightfully positioned for God's usage. So it begins here, but it just starts there. There's more to this whole equation. But we have to start because, again, the enemy wants to lop us off at the knees. He wants to take us out of commission, and he wants to start with the junk that's being filled into our vessel. But now let's talk about what, is, what do we see within Scripture 
that is this healthy pattern for this vessel full of the power and the presence of God. Let's continue in the analogy. What function does a vessel serve? Some are containers designated for storage, yes, but even that, I would say, is temporary. A vessel is a means for transporting and delivering its contents, right? It's filled only to be emptied and then filled again. John the Baptist says it this way in, in the Apostle John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 30. He says this, He must increase, but I must decrease. Okay, now we're talking about something completely different. We're no longer, we've got this kind of part worked out over here of what's going in. Now what do we do when the balance is right and we've got this healthy Christ-centered liturgy that's been built up within us and we understand that we've been called to the mission of the proclamation of the gospel. Okay, now what do we do? Well, this is John's answer. Now you must begin to decrease who you are, you, what you've put in this vessel has to decrease to allow for the Lord himself to increase within us. We must pursue this increase of the Lord. We must pursue the emptying of ourselves, ridding ourselves of the patterns of culture by God's prevailing grace and pursuing him filling us, forming us into his likeness, conforming us into his image by the building up of righteous patterns, holy patterns. Patterns that Rick mentioned weeks ago. Remember what he talked about when we studied Matthew 24 and 25 for those of you who are with us. He said four things. Faithfulness, expectancy, stewardship, and preparedness. Do you remember that? Those are patterns, you guys. Those are holy patterns that allow the Lord to increase and simultaneously as God increases within us, as righteousness increases within us, so do we decrease. See, it's not a both, you don't have to do both at the same time, like I'm going to work on God increasing and me decreasing. I mean, you could, but I'll just tell you this, let the Lord increase within you, and you will decrease within yourself, or the other way around. Work on getting yourself out of the way, and you'll find that the Lord Jesus will fill you because you have been filled by his Spirit. I hope this is making sense. Good, okay. Patterns of faithfulness, expectancy, stewardship, preparedness. Patterns of prayer. We talked about prayer already. Dependence, a pattern of dependence on God. We began this way on Tuesday as we prayed. Just a, a statement of dependence on Him. An, an, an acknowledgement of coming to the ends of ourselves. What a place to begin, you guys. What a pattern of decreasing that would be. Just to continually, every day, wake up and say, God, I am not capable in and of myself. I have nothing of what I need today to accomplish what you, aside from what he has given to us, to accomplish what you have called me to. Patterns of communion. Patterns of praise. How many times throughout the day do we just stop and give God praise and thankfulness for what he's done? That's a, man, th those are powerful things that reorient us away from this and back up to this. They're habit-forming. What do they say? You've got to do something like how many thousands of times before it to become a habit? Nobody knows? See, none of us have these good habits. No, 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 no. It's thousands. It's like, no, no, I think you have to do something like thousands. I don't know. It doesn't matter. 
You got to do it a lot in order for it to become a habit. That's my point. All of these things, worship, communion, thankfulness, they direct us towards God, and they thereby shape and they inform our habits and our life system in the biblical pattern of worship unto God. And it's here at this place that we're not only able to be used more, but to be used more effectively for God's mission. But what is the pattern that we first see in Jesus, this pattern of of decreasing and, or, or being filled and being empty. We see it in his incarnation, the emptying of himself, Philippians 2 tells us. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being made like his brothers in every respect, respect the writer of Hebrews tells us. There's a pattern of being emptied that Jesus shows to us. Again, we've been talking about the fact that Jesus is the archetype He's the prototype, right? He's the the one from whom many come from. Therefore, if we see it in Jesus, we can expect to see it at least to a degree in ourselves. And so here we have this, this example of this pattern of Jesus emptying himself. It's very clear that he emptied himself and he came to us. But yet, what does it say later in Colossians 2? That he was filled with the fullness of God in bodily form. We see it in his ministry, filled with the Spirit of God at the beginning of his ministry, only to what? Be emptied of himself on the cross unto death. To pour out of himself, to empty himself through his miracles and his wonders, to give away from what he had been filled with in his ministry. And again, on the cross, he pours himself out for the sins of the world. Only what? To be in his resurrection, to be brought unto glory, to be filled and given a place of prominence and authority. And so Colossians tells us then, if we can expect this, if we see this in Jesus, Colossians, the language that Paul uses is this in Colossians 2. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. But he says this in verse 9, for in, no, no, sorry, let me finish the statement. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elements of the spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily, and you have been filled, Paul says, in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And then he says this in verse 11, interesting, and you in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in his baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The point of it is this. It's the same thing. There's this emptying. He says you've been circumcised, not with hands, but by the power of God, by the Spirit of God. We've, been, we've put off this flesh. Here's this emptying of the fleshly self. Paul is saying, only to be filled with him, to be filled by his spirit. And so Paul will go on and he'll talk about, in the language we said it so many times, he talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Empty yourself of the old man and fill yourself with the new. So this, it's interesting. It's not like allow the Lord to fill you. We have been filled. It's that you do it. You do it. What are the patterns that you're doing that are putting on the new self and putting off the old? Sometimes I want to just keep talking, but I'll just leave that there. Paul would say this in Ephesians 15, a more practical 
example. Don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. See, one is a worship of the world. The other is a worship to God. The earthly, fleshly man is a worship to the world. The spiritual man is a worship to God. Put one off and put on the other. So my question to us today is this. Are we patterned towards worship of the world? Do our patterns lead us into worship in this worldly system, into the cathedrals with the iconography? Or do our patterns lead us towards Christ? Are they pointed towards Christ? This has everything to do with how effective we are in accomplishing his mission. The reason that that I felt like the Lord brought this to my mind today was because so often within the church, and it's natural, we all deal with sin, but some of us are stuck in these cycles of sin. Why is it that we don't see the transformative power of the Spirit of God break us from these unholy, ungodly patterns? It's because we don't understand fully this that I've been saying today, the significance of these things that keep us stuck in these patterns, that undermine the very mission that we've been called to. And we don't understand what we're going to talk about oftentimes, which is the work of the Holy Spirit to transform us by His power and to change us. And so we've got some growing to do. We need to grow up in these things. We need to mature in these areas. Listen, if you feel hopeless in something today, I'm telling you, Do not be hopeless because there is so much hope. If there's something you're just so unhappy with in your life that you give yourself to over and over and over again, I tell you today, the Spirit of God, the surpassing power, the power that Paul speaks of that raised Christ Jesus from the dead that dwells within you, God wants to reveal His power to you for that area of your life so that we can be on mission with God. Partners, co-laborers, working alongside of what he wants to do, being these vessels. Yes, we're broken, but you guys, man, it's right where God wants us to be. It's right where he wants us to be. So we're more than just a physical body living out each day until our final day. Rather, we are these jars of clay filled with the surpassing power of God, which is His Spirit. And because we're not yet made perfect, we must seek to fill ourselves with holy things, patterning our habits and our desires towards Him and in so doing, away from the world, letting Him increase and it decreases. And in this then, having been filled by His Spirit, having been filled each day in preparation for His mission that we're now able to empty ourselves as Jesus did by this power of His Spirit, taking the presence of God into our places of work, taking the presence of God into our places of of our lives, into our entertainment spots, and seeing that the aim of the gospel is God wants to pour Himself out in a marvelous and miraculous and powerful way for those who do do not yet know Him. He wants to pour Himself out in power in these places. And I'm talking about crazy power. So if you have no grid for the work of the Holy Spirit, I'm excited for you to come and to sit and to learn. I think some of us need to expect more, and some of us probably need to rein in a little bit. 
But I'm telling you today, if you've got no grid for the Holy Spirit, if you grew up in maybe more of a cessationist background, we are not cessationists. We believe in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit today. We believe in the power of God today. That's my timer to end. We need God's grace, do we not, to do this? Do we not? We need God's grace. Let's stand and let's pray for God's grace this morning. Lord, I thank you for the revelation of your word. Lord, I thank you for men like James K.A. Smith who have wrestled with things that are sometimes difficult to comprehend, but yet when we begin to glimpse the significance, Lord, it becomes of paramount importance to us. Lord, I ask today that you would take all the words that have been said, Lord, and by your spirit, which I know you desire to do, plant within our hearts, Lord, seed, so that as we go from here, Lord Jesus, we consider these patterns that we give ourselves to. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, help us by your grace to be patterned unto worship to you, Lord God. And in so doing away from the world, Lord, these areas that grip us, Lord, some of us, again, this individualism, this autonomy, there's, some of these are places of worship that we go to the altar of day in and day out that grip us, that hold us, Lord God, but yet we do not want to be enslaved any longer. We want to be free, Lord Jesus. Would you help us by your power and by your might today? And Lord, we remind ourselves that none of this is just so that we have got this sense of self-worth, Lord God, but it's that we are pointed towards the thing that you have called us to, that we're reminded, Lord, that we are seeking holiness, Father, that you might use us as these vessels to pour ourselves out, Lord, that you would use us, Lord, to, to, to bring your power of your spirit into our places of work and into our schools, Lord God, and into our neighborhoods and into all the places that we inhabit all week long. I pray for mindfulness, Lord, towards this day in and day out, that we would begin with a confession of our need for you, first and foremost, Lord. Asking you to fill us for the day, to fill us for the morning, with eyes, Father, fixed on the mission that you have called us to. Help us with this, we pray. May it be under your glory, Lord God, and may it be for the sake of the city to see many come to Christ who do not know you. We pray for this in your awesome name. Amen. Did you want to say anything to close it? Or, okay, yeah, please do. Yeah, no, just real quick. Can I just encourage you to make in your own mind and heart right now a determination to this week begin to form a new pattern that's Godward that you maybe have never had in your life before. Not legalism. I'm not talking about Matt explained it so well. But just in your heart and mind to say, Lord, beginning this week, I want to begin a new pattern in my life that's Godward of worship, that it would form in me, um, cause me to increase in, in you, to, in, you, cause me to decrease in you to increase. Amen.